Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. We preview film productions and events in the region and speak with creative entrepreneurs as Erie carves out its part in the wider industry landscape. This week, following recent articles in the New York Times about the Erie Art Museum, we thought we could invite some of Erie Art's leadership and business experts to discuss code of conduct. First, we'll speak with Deborah Thompson, president of Strategy Solutions, who will join us to discuss the role board of directors play in creating and enforcing the code of conduct in a nonprofit and best practices for addressing businesses and organizations. And in our second roundtable, Kate Newbert-Lechner, president of the Erie Playhouse, Jennifer Dennehy, general manager of Daphmark Dance Theater, and Kinetic Creativity will talk about next steps for the Erie Arts community. But before we get into these important discussions, let's talk about this week's special event. Film Grain Dinner and a Movie is our Wednesday night film series. Events take place at the Bourbon Barrel at 1213 State Street in downtown Erie, Pennsylvania. The series features a big screen, upgraded sound, couch and table seating, and great company. Dinner and dessert are buffet style and included with your admission. Vegetarian options every week and gluten-free on request, plus table service all night long. Wednesday night, we are screening Joker, which was just nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Plus, following the screaming, NAMI of Erie County will be hosting a panel on mental illness. Our programmer, John C. Lyons, is out of town this week finishing his film Unearth, but he had this to share about the film. The best story villains are well-developed human beings, and from a purely entertainment perspective, Arthur Fleck is a well-drawn, three-dimensional character, but Joker isn't really entertainment. I wouldn't even include it in the comic book genre. It's a character study, one I interpret as a warning cry forcibly delivered through painful, disturbing laughter, a grimy, cigarette-stained NYC lamplight shining down on those among us whom we all need to take some level of responsibility for turning our backs on. Those ignored, dehumanized, chewed up and spit out by the system. People we can't be bothered to care about until it may be too late. It doesn't ask for sympathy of those who commit horrible crimes. It asks for empathy, love, and equality to our fellow citizens teetering on the edge, crying out for attention. You feel a deep sadness for the character, his pain and struggles, his invisible existence in society, but at some point in the story, as a product of his surroundings, he descends into his mind's reality, and it is a very dark, isolated and scary place to inhabit. We live in a society and system that creates monsters. We shine a big spotlight on the most famous of them among us. Our obsession with serial killers, for example, satisfy our sick base appetites, yet turn our backs on those just fighting to survive in a society that says you are nothing unless you are young and rich and have a big smile on your face and your life together. This film made me think about the Arthur Flex I've turned away from. We must do more for these people. We can't only blame our broken system, as members of this society, we are also accountable. Pre-sales for Joker are available all through our website, filmsocietynwpa.org. All right, thanks, Jesse. And thank you to John, wherever you are, for <laughs> writing that up. So this week we have two discussions. Our first part of our discussion is going to be with Deb Thompson, who is the CEO of Strategy Solutions. She works with organizations to help develop their capacity. Deb, welcome to Film Grain. Thank you, Erica. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? All right, then. I am president and founder of Strategy Solutions, which is a business development organization. We work with nonprofits and for-profit organizations to help them envision what they want to do and get to the next level. We do board governance 
organizational development and strategic planning work primarily. We have three consultants on our team who are licensed trainers, consultants, and peer reviewers for the Standards for Excellence, which is an ethics and accountability code for the nonprofit sector. I am also on the National Standards Ethics Council, which is the governing body that develops the standards for the United States. And Jackie Catcherbone, my colleague at Strategy Solutions, is chairman of the Pennsylvania Standards Council, who oversees the administration of the standards here in Pennsylvania. Thanks. So can you tell us a little bit more about those Standards for Excellence? The Standards for Excellence, which is an ethics and accountability code for the nonprofit sector, was developed probably about 20 years ago by Maryland nonprofits shortly after the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was passed in Congress. If you recall way back then, the Enron scandal in the United States actually caused Congress to pass legislation to create transparency in corporate governance and put ethics and accountability teeth into for-profit businesses. And a lot of the legislation and oversight for for-profit corporations has been put into place in the United States to ensure that nonprofit corporations follow ethical principles and are transparent in their business operations. Now, while Sarbanes-Oxley also applies to nonprofits, there hasn't been legislated by Congress a formal Ethics and Accountability Act for nonprofits. So the standards were created to provide that framework for an ethical and responsibly governed nonprofit organization. And while those standards are voluntary to a large degree, with the exception of several items that have been built into the tax returns for nonprofits, they're guiding principles, if you will. And there are six basic guiding principles that follow various topics related to good governance and management of a nonprofit. There are 67 benchmarks and 27 areas of focus that if an organization follows them, the nonprofit will be a responsibly governed, responsibly managed, and ethical organization. Can you tell us all of them right now? <laughs> Heavens no. Okay. I, I do not know all 67 off the top of my well, head. Well, how many organizations do you think know them? You know, we, we don't really know them here, you know, but what about the nonprofits that you serve? If you go into an organization and you start talking to them, do they, number one, even know the standards exist? And are they haphazardly following some? <laughs> That's a very good question because I would say that in most cases, I think across the board maybe about... 50% of nonprofits know about 50% of the standards. And that's really a sad testimony to our current environment. There are, I would say, maybe a couple of hundred organizations that are accredited for the standards in Pennsylvania. And there's several thousand that are accredited related to the standards across the country. But it is an ongoing educational process to help organizations know and understand and help them apply these standards in practice. We did this podcast because of recent incidents, um, high-profile incidents, where we think we can all, as a community, learn um, about some standards of a code of ethics and how um, organizations can react appropriately, but also how can organizations prevent any issues with ethical violations or code of conduct issues. 
It's really unfortunate, but the things that we hear in the media where there's, you know, violations of ethics or accountability of any type, those things are a symptom that there are broader governance and systems uh, problems inside of the nonprofit. And if an organization is appropriately proactive, the board understands its role in leadership of the organization and its role in oversight to ensure that good systems are put into place. Management understands their role in developing and adhering to the standards and both work together to ensure that the organization is responsibly managed and governed. And it's failures of those systems working appropriately that we hear in the media. That's what we see as, you know, we shouldn't do this. So why do you think nonprofits don't cover all of these standards? Is it not because they don't know about them, but sometimes it can be a bit haphazard. I think some nonprofits can be really strong in some areas and not even know these other areas exist. So how do they cover everything? What can they do to arm themselves with the information that they need in order to make their nonprofits better, their boards stronger, and feel like they can stand behind a really solid set of bylaws and, and policies that address all of the aspects of the organization? You know, you, you asked about 16 questions in that question. <laughs> I, I have Let's to say break that. it down, okay? Well, and first of all, <laughs> I don't know anyone in any nonprofit organization anywhere, whether at the board or the staff level, who wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to go to this nonprofit and screw it up. Right. I, nobody does that. And I think what, what happens in practice is you have well-intentioned people who simply don't know what they don't know. And many of us, myself included, we, we start to serve on nonprofit boards and we learn how to be a board member from the last board we served on. And if that, that may or may not be a good experience, depending on what that board was. What we need to do is really take responsibility for ourselves and learn what the standards are. There's plenty of educational programs available, many of which are free of charge for organizations to learn about the standards. For example, here in Erie, the nonprofit partnership actually makes education programs on the standards available to its members free of charge. Um, we, the, we at Strategy Solutions actually are the faculty for those programs along with uh, Tom Tapitza, who is an attorney from the Knox firm. We are all licensed trainers, consultants, and peer reviewers for the standards, and we do those programs free of charge for the community. So they're available for folks. Uh, the Pennsylvania Association of Nonprofit organizations, which is what's called a replication partner for the standards in Pennsylvania. The way the standards are set up is that different states and different organizations actually agree as it's kind of like a franchise. They're a franchise. They offer that for the standards here in Pennsylvania, and they make the programs available at very low cost or in some cases free of charge to their members so that people can take advantage of learning the standards. Um, there's also the both the PANO and the Maryland Nonprofits website for the National Standards for Excellence Institute actually offer a lot of free information on the standards. It's downloadable and it can be read and understood. And there are education packets for each of the six major 
areas and the benchmarks so that people can learn about and apply the standards and figure out how to use them in their organization. You put, you know, put it all together, it's a pretty big volume. But if you look at it one piece at a time, organizations can learn and apply those various standards to their organization. I'm an executive director of a nonprofit, and I'm listening to this podcast. So what should I be doing? Should I be going to my board and saying, hey, guys, let's get involved here, or should it be the other way around? How does that relationship work? The relationship between the board and the executive director is a really important one and kind of a chicken and egg thing, okay? Do I go to the board? Does the board come to me? How does that work? And the answer to that question is yes. Leadership (laughs) needs to come from both places, and it doesn't matter where it starts or how it starts. And quite honestly, if you look at the role of the board, in governance, the, board, the board's role is to set vision and direction and to hire staff, an executive director, that will help implement that strategy in their organization. You could argue that it's the executive director's responsibility to educate the board about the things that are happening in the environment, including the need for good board governance, and educate them about what their role needs to be to support the organization. So, And conversely, the board members should be aware of what it means to be a good board member. And if they, you know, assess themselves that they've never been to a formal training, that they don't know about the standards for excellence, they should be saying to the executive director, please make sure that education happens for our entire board, not just me, so that we can understand what our role needs to be and figure out how we work together to raise the bar on our performance especially if we feel that there's an area where we're deficient in any one of the six focus areas of the standards. What happens when a nonprofit experiences a crisis or some kind of um, unforeseen media incident and the board has to respond? I believe some of the, the policies are how to address these kinds of incidents when they happen. How many organizations have you run into that have a crisis management policy? Unfortunately, very few. Unfortunately for many nonprofits, the area of public awareness and public education and advocacy, which is one of the areas of the standards, people don't really understand what's involved in all of that. So that's one of the areas where they seem to develop capacity last. Finance is the area where every nonprofit seems to focus on first and sometimes only to that and don't really think about, you know, leadership, board staff and volunteers and resource development and risk assessment and the whole idea of how we communicate under certain situations. And, you know, when we hear about negative things that happen to nonprofits in the media, that's really a signal not only that they have not proactively managed certain aspects of the organization itself, they're really not managing communication around things, that crisis communication plan. Every organization should have a process for which it will address areas that are in question and to look at best practices in that particular discipline, whatever it is, and come up with a plan to fix something that's been highlighted that needs to be fixed. It sounds like there's a lot of things about being a board that just kind of get overlooked. And I think that 
as, as board members, because I know, you know, you invite people to be on the board. It's not like they're applying for a job and there's an in-depth, you know, discussion of do you understand this policy and are you aware of that? And you're bringing all this governance knowledge. Usually it's board members are coming on to support the organization in ways that go beyond what happens in that boardroom, if you will. You know, they're out in the community. They're creating connections. They're helping doing fundraising. So maybe the last thing they're thinking about is like, hmm, how do we address this particular policy, guys? I'm going to bring it up at next next month's meeting. Well, and and I think that comes back to the responsibility of the staff to make sure that management systems are in place to handle these things and for the board members to think through what it is that their role is under particular given circumstances. And that's part of the board orientation program that should be in place, developed by management and overseen by the governance committee of the board. And what's tragic about many boards of directors is that many of them don't have governance committees, okay? A board will have a nominating committee outlined in their bylaws, but there's no one responsible at the board level for board performance, board engagement, board development. So they, you know, you, you can't expect something to happen when nobody's responsible for that to, to be done, okay? So I, I say that to a lot of boards. You know, how can you expect your board to be engaged when there's no one responsible for board engagement? And the executive director, in most cases, the executive director is going to be really uncomfortable telling the board what to do, because in most cases, the board is their boss, so to speak, or the, they work for the board on behalf of the organization. So the board's members need to understand what the role of the staff is in giving them good, what I call completed staff work, and giving them direction and education but they also have to give the executive director permission to build those systems where their behavior as board members is part of that yeah. process. And they can be held accountable. Mm -hmm. Right, because board members should be held accountable by other board members for the performance of the board. And that is lacking in so many boards because they don't know how to get there from here. And the way, what we've found over the years is the way to get there from here is to educate both board members and staff members about what their distinct roles are. Create a process for the board and staff to negotiate how they work on those roles together so that in the cases where the executive director should be telling the board what they need to do and what to do, frankly, they have the permission to say what that is. And the board members actually hold staff accountable to build the systems and the performance metrics that the board needs to have so that the board knows that the organization is being managed responsibly. So that at any given moment, they could stand behind their board performance and the performance of their executive director or the staff of the organization. That they should feel like, yep, we've got all of this covered. Come and ask us a question. We can, you know, we can stand up to everything that we should. Correct. Mm -hmm. And that's what performance metrics are for a nonprofit and um, feedback loops so that there is a mechanism in place for information to be shared and summarized to the board in a way that is appropriate from a leadership and governance perspective without micromanaging the day-to-day -day operations of the agency. 
So you mentioned before the nonprofit partnership. Can you tell everyone again what, what they're offering? Um, the, first of all, the nonprofit partnership, for those of you who may not be familiar with that, is a what's called a management support organization that is a, I guess, a, a division of the Erie Community Foundation. It's while there are other corporate sponsors of the nonprofit partnership, the lion's share of its funding comes from the Erie Community Foundation, and its mission is to provide capacity building and education and support for nonprofit organizations. And the idea is that it will, it will result in excellence in our nonprofit organizations in the community. And um, the nonprofit partnership, it actually was... I want to say started in the early 2000s. It, the original name of it was the Center for Nonprofit Services, and it became the Nonprofit Partnership in 2006. So it's actually been around for quite a while, and it provides education and training and support and does an annual Nonprofit Leadership Day where it brings in speakers from not only the region but from other parts of the country who are experts in particular disciplines and topics that nonprofit leaders need to know. Mm -hmm. And so organizations become members of the nonprofit partnership for a pretty low fee. It's actually very affordable. Yeah. And once you're a member, you can take part in Erie Gives Day, which is a, a big uh, benefit of being a member because you can do fundraising through Erie Gives Day. And you have access to free resources like this education. And what Something's coming up very soon. Well, the Standards for Excellence training is an ongoing annual training where every other month on the third Wednesday of the month, we had the first one in January. It was a two-hour lunch and learn on the third Wednesday of the month where we talked about uh, mission strategy and evaluation, which is the first of the standard series. The next program will be the third Wednesday of March, and the topic will be leadership, board staff, and volunteers. And the next one will be in May, so it's every other month, um, will be legal, legal and ethical responsibilities and risk management. So each, each of the standards, there's an upcoming one will be on resource management. There is one on uh, communications and advocacy. But there are great resources here in Erie for board members, for executive directors, for anyone who's, who's leading uh, a nonprofit organization, and a lot of them are free or low cost. So there's really no reason why people can remain ignorant of all of these um, of all of these standards. I mean, it's really important. You know, we, we, of course, are always encouraging nonprofit board members, especially to learn what they don't know they don't know about leadership and governance. So the, really, there's no excuse for people to to not know and to, you know, say, well, I don't have time. I, you know, we don't have the resources to do this. You don't want to be the nonprofit organization that looks back and says, how did this happen to us? Well, that's a great um, opportunity to broaden our discussion right now. So thanks so much, Deb. And we're actually adding two women who are leaders in the nonprofit arts community in particular um, for the next phase of our discussion. So with us, we have Kate Newbert-Lechner, Executive Director of the Erie Playhouse, and Jennifer Dennehy of Dapmark Dance Theater and owner of Kinetic Creativity. Um, and so, you know, we have questions more specifically about your organizations, but also from your perspectives, you know, looking around at, at the boards you work with and, and people who are also in leadership um, leadership roles, specifically in the arts community. But we're also going to talk specifically about kind of code of conduct policies, um, because 
that was really important to John to start talking about that a little bit more specifically because it's it's something that I like Deb said right at the end how did this happen to us no one get, wakes up in the morning and says oh I want to you know have a crisis today but when it happens you know what what do you do and what are the things that you've experienced as as leaders in the in the community so when you started working in nonprofit and I'll ask maybe Kate first did you know any code of conduct policies that existed when you were working in nonprofit um, I mean, I was aware of the code of conduct. I was not aware of where they were intentionally present in the organization that I was, you know, when I began at the organization. I mean, I always had, I started at the Playhouse in the capacity of youth theater director. So obviously I had really myself personally for my program working with, you know, youth, you have a your your own set of, you know, code, like, this is what we follow, this is what we do. I mean, you know, we always had things in place where, you know, obviously, legally, if you're working with minors, you're required to have your clearances, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, I don't know that there was a written down on paper, complete code of conduct, um, which is actually something that we've been working on over the past couple of years and are finally finalizing a complete comprehensive plan that is going to address, um, conduct within the staff, within the volunteers, um, also will, um, because we're in the unique situation of, you know, we do theater. So we have people in rehearsal settings where they have to kiss or they have to touch or, you know, so, um, been working with, I've joined a group of intimacy directors and have been using, um, those kinds of standards and we're building that into our policy as well so that we have a policy in the rehearsal wow. room as well. Yeah. Um, just cause I think it's so important to make sure that people are protected. I mean, we live in a, we live in a different day and age now. You know, um, things, you know, I, I remember growing up in theater and they're like, okay, well, you just kiss. Mm -hmm. And then having the overzealous actor that I'm playing opposite that makes things really uncomfortable, but there's no way to address that. And so I think it's just really important that we make sure we're protecting our volunteers or protecting our anyone that, that's there from those kinds of situations. We want to make sure everyone is comfortable, everyone is heard, everyone is safe. And how about you, Jen? Have you encountered this? My... Um Entry into nonprofits was actually in the social service side of things, so I was familiar with it from that perspective. But I guess my experience within arts organizations has been, if it exists, it's very minimal. And I love the idea of having the rehearsal setting space because obviously I'm a dancer. Um, and, you know, if you get lucky, then you work with dance companies like Daphmark where it's lovely and wonderful and everyone gets along and everyone's appropriate and we're all grownups and we get it. But that's not always the case. And it'd be really nice to have things that are in place to ensure that everybody understands the expectations because that's the big problem is sometimes people don't know what is expected of them, right. especially children. Well, especially when you're working with volunteers, too. Yeah. yeah and, and the issue isn't always the expectations of the behavior because they may exist, but the challenge becomes, what do I do if there's a problem? Where where do I go? Who do I talk to? And every organization should have grievance policies in place so that if there is a problem, that they can go somewhere that's safe and confidential and that information can be shared. The organization should have whistleblower policies so that if they have a concern that somebody's not following a protocol or a process or they feel uncomfortable that they can go and and have their issue be heard but have that be investigated and followed up on in a timely manner right. and and those are the systems that the boards boards of directors should ensure exist and management should put into place 
along with a process so that they actually can function in an appropriate way. Because having a policy written on a shelf without a process to implement it, and I've seen that in lots of organizations, that's not really helpful either. Right. Well, we have a sexual harassment policy that, you know, at the beginning of every production, every cast member, every crew member has to sign. But it's, you know, it's a piece of paper, you hand it to them, you say, sign it, turn it back in. But there's nothing in place to ensure that they actually did read it and that it actually is being followed. So that's why we're trying to develop a more comprehensive policy to make sure that it is all understood and it is all followed and that chain of command is there. And so when you have policies that address some of these issues like sexual harassment or other um, rehearsal concerns that you're talking about, probably for both of you, you know, you have people in rehearsal spaces and they're touching and kissing, like you said. Um, But what happens if there's a code of conduct issue with a leader in the nonprofit and how does the relationship between the board and that leader play out? You know, how should it? Where's the accountability when the person who signed the sexual harassment is Kate? (laughs) And Kate, we've, we've, heard that you've been sexually harassing somebody. So what's the what's the accountability there? What's the leadership do? I mean, I think that falls exclusively to the board. So the board needs to understand those policies. And um, I, I would expect that if I was in that situation, that my board would immediately at least put me on a leave of absence until they could investigate further. Um, but that's what you would expect to happen. That's what I would expect okay. to happen. Well, that's that's interesting. I mean, what about you, Jen? Um, I agree with Kate on that. And my next question is, what if um, the issue has been brought to the board and they haven't done anything with it? Like, who holds the board accountable? Right. I think that's Uh, the challenge. Well, that is the challenge. And I think this comes back to the whole governance function of the board because a a lot of boards, they put the accountability of board performance in the hands of the chair. And the chair ends up being responsible for both the content and the process of the board leadership. And I disagree with that. I actually think that the governance chair, so every organization should have a governance committee, and the governance chair should be the person who is thinking about how does the board behave, what is the function of the board, and how do they do things in a way that shows good board performance. So even if the board chair doesn't address something immediately, which in the case of a an employee or an executive director having having some issue that someone's questioning their performance, they if the board chair doesn't immediately take care of that, the governance chair should be questioning the board chair's perform, you know, their behavior in that particular circumstance because that should be addressed immediately because it's a human resources issue. Um, although I will take this opportunity to just talk about the fact that many nonprofits, especially small to medium-sized ones, don't often have strong human resources functions in them. Um, I will quote John Nick, who owns a local human resources consulting firm, and said, in most nonprofits, or even in most organizations, we have this invisible box of human resources. Finance is front and center, and everybody cares about the finances, and operations is right there. We've got to have our program or service or product delivery. But the human resources, which is managing the people who produce the product or service or program, we're not necessarily thinking about that. 
And everybody thinks that they're a human resources professional until it comes to the point where they need good, solid human resource practice. So my advice there is that someone on the board should understand human resources practices not to jump in on that situation and micromanage it, which many boards will do, but to ensure that there is a relationship with a human resources professional, whether it be staff in that organization who can help investigate and handle it, which is what happens in organizations that have a human resource function, or a contractual relationship with an HR firm so that a professional can be called in immediately to investigate anything that might be of question, in question, and to come up with recommendations for how to deal with that, both practically, eth you know, from a, a process perspective, as well as legally and ethically, if there is um, some violation of any practices anywhere. So how do you approach some of those issues when they come up just purely with your board. So if you've had a, if you have, what's the communication like with your board? And do you bring things to the board's attention quickly? Or do you think, eh, we don't have to bother the board with this kind of issue? You know, where, where's the line for you to go, okay, this is a board issue. We have to take that to the board for their input. I tend to be of the mind that I, oh, I would rather overshare than undershare. Um, I would, you know, I would rather have another set of checks and balances there. Um, so I try to share a lot with my board, even if it is just with my chair or with the, because our, we have our board chair and then actually the chair of our governance committee is the vice president of our board. So I have both, I have a, I have a full text thread with my board president and board vice president where if something comes up and I'll just be like, Hey guys, just so you know, FYI, this is going on. Um, and they'll either say, okay, you got that in hand or they'll say, maybe we should bring this up at governance or, you know, so I, I, we try to keep an open line of communication and um, just just so everybody's kind of on the same page. I don't ever want anyone to feel blindsided or go, Kate, why didn't you tell me that? We, we should have, I wish I would have known about that because we could have done. I mean, that's, that's w what I do. Um, I don't know how it works with others, but. And I'm the general manager, so I take things to Jean-Marc and I know he has a good relationship with his board, so everything goes straight to them through him, but that's chain of. The direction that that goes. Mm -hmm. So, do you think with recent events, I don't necessarily want to go down the road of everything that has recently happened at the art museum, but I think all of us in the nonprofit community know um, we're aware of what's happened, and what a lot of people have brought up is, well, where's accountability for that board? You know, who was responsible for managing an executive director? Who you'd have, you knew there were issues with an executive director, so. For other arts organizations, did everyone go, oh, no, you know, we, we, well, we I want to jump in and just say this isn't this isn't an issue that's unique to arts organizations. So I understand that. Well, you know, you know it's funny because talking about the arts community, but this is what you're what we're describing here. And the issue that is, you know, that has been splashed all over the media is just a symptom of the lack of systems in nonprofit organizations in general. It is not just the arts community. So, Well, <laughs> I was thinking about arts community specifically because I'm thinking about other nonprofits out there whose HR policies and their board of directors are really, really serious because they're providing human services that have potentially 
really dire personal consequences in people's lives. You know, like you're going to get a service from a nonprofit. You can't just have a board that's like, well, maybe we'll do a policy on that. You know, the require, you know, you have to cover people's privacy and you have to cover how people are, you know, handling clients that they're providing direct services to. So I think there's a lot more attention on that. That's what I meant by Mm -hmm. arts organizations specifically, because I think in the arts, Maybe you bring on board members that love the arts, that are patrons of the arts, but they're not necessarily thinking all the time about board processes and procedures. And I think you brought up a great point, which is a governance committee chair needs to be like the internal investigation bureau for both the staff and the board. They have to be non-biased. They They can't be like, oh, well, you know, I'm just, I'm on the board. So whatever the board says and does is okay with me. You have to remain a little bit... They have to be thinking about clearly board performance yeah. as a corporate unit. Mm-hmm. Um, not not so much uh, the investigating body for staff issues. Um, I think it's really important as we talk about board versus staff that, that everyone recognize that the board has one employee and that's the executive director and should not be micromanaging staff-related issues. That's the executive director's purview to manage. But if there are human resources issues or questions and there's n- not a human resources professional on the staff of the caliber to manage um, what I call level two human resources issues or level three human resources issues, which are ones that um, are beyond the basic compliance, you know, we we you know, do the W-9s and we make sure that people get paid in payroll there, there's a whole variety of other things that are the management side of human resources. If there isn't somebody on the staff capable of handling that, the organization really should contract with somebody who brings that expertise and not live in the we can't afford it mode, which is where a lot of nonprofit you know a lot of nonprofits use the excuse, well, we can't afford it, so we don't do that. And then they wonder why they have problems down the road. With that said, do you think there are potential current or potential board members out there in any nonprofit in the arts community? If you are um, thinking of joining a board, you've been asked to join a board. Do you think people are a little gun shy now? I, you know what? I really don't. I guess I don't know. I don't know that I can answer that question. Um, I don't know. I mean, based off of obviously I follow social media as well. I know a lot of people have offered to step back up that were old board members of the museum to help at least like set up like a task force or a small group of people to get it back on the right direction. Um, and I know that list is pretty vast of people that are willing to step up. So I don't know that there's a gun shyness, mm-hmm. but maybe there will be an overall uh broader awareness of what the responsibilities of boards are. So this could be a beautiful gift for the rest of us to learn from. Um, but well, that's, that's heartening that people, you know, if you care about a nonprofit enough, you won't let it see hard times that people can step up. But also if we were to, if I were to approach someone and say, Hey, would you like to be, you know, a board member for the film society would love to have you. A potential board member would say, I don't know, tell me about how you run your your board. What's your governance policy? Yeah, what's your governance policy? I mean, is that what someone should be asking a nonprofit before well, they get on board? I, I actually, think, yeah. they should. Yeah. 
I was just going to say, yeah, I think, I think if you have a board member or somebody, a potential board member that's asking those kinds of questions, that's definitely someone you want on your board. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people in today's world are somewhat, re- if, if they're reluctant to serve on a board, that they fear what I called indentured servitude. Okay, nobody <laughs> wants to be the indentured servant to the nonprofit that requires tons of hours of what's called management service volunteerism. And and I'll give you an example. I've known lots of graphic designers and marketing people who have been asked to serve on a board, but what the nonprofit wants them to do is be the full-time marketing director. Mm-hmm. And they can't do that. And that's not how you staff, that's not how you appropriately staff a nonprofit organization. But, you know, if boards really organize themselves to do good board work, which is what a governance committee well-functioning can help a board do, then the board board committees should be functioning. They should have an agenda of work that supports the management of the organization and help support the strategic direction and implementation of the strategic plan. But somebody has to teach them what that means, has to help the executive director understand how to set that up and work with everyone, get everyone sort of rowing in the same direction and understanding their roles so that the board is overseeing without micromanaging and management is really setting the strategy for the vision and direction that the organization needs to go. All right. Well, any final comments from uh, Jen or Kate? No, thank you for having us. Yeah, no, thanks so much. That's been our episode. You can buy tickets for Joker and our 2020 programming at filmsocietynwpa.org or at the door the day of the event. Forrest Taylor of the Erie Reader will be joining us for a new weekly critic segment, and we will be interviewing him and getting to know more about him. Make sure you follow us on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain.